And welcome back to Midday. I'm Tom Hall. By the way, coming up tomorrow, a special edition of Midday. We're going to bring you live coverage of the inauguration of Governor Wes Moore and Lieutenant Governor Aruna Miller. As the first people of color to assume the highest offices in our state, their inauguration is historic. We'll have reports from Annapolis and Baltimore from the WIPR News team, as well as perspective and analysis from Dr. Terry Ann Scott, an African-American historian and the director of the Institute for Common Power. Our coverage begins tomorrow at noon right here on Midday. My next guest today is Kristen Henning. She's an attorney and professor at Georgetown Law who directs the Georgetown Juvenile Justice Clinic and Initiative. She has represented youth in Washington, D.C. for more than 25 years. Her new book is called The Rage of Innocence, How America Criminalizes Black Youth. She'll be speaking at the University of Baltimore School of Law later today, and she joins us on Zoom. Professor Henning, welcome to the show. Hi, Tom. Happy to be here. Thank you for having me. And thank you for your time. Um, One of the statistics that you cite early in your book is that the percentage of crime committed by black youth, uh, only about 9% of that crime uh, is violent crime. Yet black youth are uh, arrested and charged uh, at much greater uh, rates than other kids their age, white kids their age. Um, And so talk about uh, where that disparity comes from. Why is it that black youth are uh, arrested so much more often than white youth? Yeah, you know, it's really important to, to note for your listeners that whenever we start these conversations about the arrest, prosecution, and detention of children in our country, people automatically assume that we are talking about serious violent offenders, Um, rape, murder, uh, violent assaults, robberies, carjackings. But the reality is very few children of any race and of any class are responsible for or engaged in the types of violent crimes that we fear most. And that is true for black youth as well. As you indicated, only about 9% you know, of black youth in our country um, are engaged in or have been engaged in this type of behavior. Yet there is this persistent perception and fear that black children are dangerous. And I have to say, that it dates back almost, you know, uh, to the very founding of our country when the narrative that when when leaders of our country, right, needed to advance a narrative to justify the enslavement, right, the lynching, um, uh, the killing of, of Black children. So much of the narrative started it intentionally. But then even if we fast forward to the 1990s, there was a temporary uptick in crime. And indeed, it was temporary. Um, But black children became the target. They became the direct target of this war on crime. Um, And they were treated in in, in much an exaggerated way as um, super predators, right? There was this idea, this myth that was put forth by Princeton professor John DeUlio in the the 1990s, um, who claimed that black children were going to run amok and rape, maim, and kill all of America. That myth turned out to be not true at all. 
crime rapidly went down in our country. And um, indeed, black children did not become super predators. But it's that type of language, that type of rhetoric that has lived on, started off very explicitly. Now it lives on implicitly, right, in our subconscious. We, and I would say this to, you know, folks walking down the street, walking in a park, you see a Black child or a group of Black children, you have to ask yourselves, are you afraid and why? And it is that legacy, first of intentional narratives, then subconscious narratives that carry us to believe that Black children are somehow different and more dangerous um, than any other child um, in our country. You write that the policing of Black adolescents requires a special telling. So mm -hmm. uh, the, the relationship between the police and the Black community in general uh, has been fraught in this country for quite a long time. Uh, it's certainly very fraught here in Baltimore, which has been under a consent decree for the past seven years with the Justice Department uh, concerning uh, the methods and the, the pattern and practice of policing here in Baltimore. Is it is it a different um, does it require a special telling because the treatment of black adolescents is not only different than the treat treatment of white adolescents, but is it also different than the policing of black adults? So both and um, both of those are right. I mean, it is no coincidence that some of the most high profile incidences of 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 anti-Black violence have involved children. I mean, we could think back to Emmett Till, right? Just 14 years old. Um, and think about the ways in which anti-Black violence against a child operates. It operates to limit the promise and the prospect. It's a way to say to an entire group of people um, before you even reach independence before you begin to assert yourself and assert your rights, we're going to limit you. Um, and let me show the world. And we think about, um, you know, the killing of Emmett Till's really on the heels of Brown versus Board of Education that um, ended the legal segregation of, of, of the school system. But think about how that was the, the, the lynching of Emmett Till is a statement that, look, we're not going to let black children integrate. We're not going to allow black children a space in our society. So I think um, there is a special way in which um, the, the treatment, the violence against black children operates as a statement, as a socio-political statement and limitation. The other reason that statement is so important is this notion of adolescence. What do we know about adolescents? Adolescents are impulsive, reactive, emotional. They are um, uh, influenced by their peers. They don't think ahead to the long-term consequences. I say that to say that adolescents of all races and classes all over the world, not just the United States, engage in delinquent behavior in part because of this adolescent impulsivity. And so this notion that the the policing of black youth, black adolescents requires a special telling is to recognize first that our responses to adolescent um, misbehavior, um, which is natural, normal, to be expected, testing of limits, we respond to that radically differently when it's white youth 
um, involved, when there are white youth involved, than in black youth. So I think both of those are really important for us to consider. And many of the stories that you tell in this book are stories of black teenagers being arrested for doing stuff that teenagers just do. I mean, it's just normal activity for teenagers. Um, you begin the book in your, right in your introduction uh, with a, a kid uh, you call Eric uh, who sees on television, I guess, something about a Molotov cocktail uh, and doesn't do any great research about, you know, what goes into a Molotov cocktail, but uh, gets a bottle and throws some uh, household cleaning products in it uh, and makes a sort of fake wick uh, with toilet paper uh, and then sort of forgets all about it. But it ends up in his book bag and he forgets about it. He shows up to school uh, and then there's a big uh, there's a big problem. Uh, tell us a little bit about what happened to this uh, teenager uh, in that instance. So Eric gets arrested at school. And so what happens is Eric walks into his school with this uh, bottle, as you have well described it. It's in his book bag. And the reality is he had made this little toy. And literally, it was just that because he did not research what a Molotov cocktail was. But he he puts it in his book bag on a Saturday night. He's um, uh, he's afraid that the liquid will spill out on his mother's white carpet. He gets up on, you know, Monday morning, hasn't thought anything about it, forgets the bottle is in his bag. He goes in through the front of the school and runs his book bag through the metal detector, at which point a school resource officer says, hey, what is this? Eric immediately responds, oh, that is nothing. You can throw it away. Eric goes on to class. Little does he realize this is the beginning of a nine-month ordeal. Um, Eric is ripped out of his classroom. He is arrested in the hallway in front of classmates, in, in front of teachers, and he is held overnight in detention. Um, and he ends up spending uh, nine months in court until we are able to essentially convince the court that this wasn't indeed any sort of flammable object in the, the bottle, that he had no intention to blow up the school. And Tom, I have to tell you, what really struck me about that story is some months later, I was giving a lecture um, at, um, at a school in, in Connecticut, and I was sharing this story. And someone said to me afterwards, a white woman came up to me afterwards and said, you know what, my son did the same thing. And I said, well, what happened to him? She said that he got placed in an accelerated advanced science class. That's just devastating to recognize the difference between the way a black child was treated and a white child was treated. We gave that black child no benefit of the doubt. We treated him like a criminal instead of rewarding his intellectual curiosity, his creativity. Kristen Henning is a law professor at Georgetown Law and the director of the Juvenile Justice Clinic and Initiative there. We're talking about her book, The Rage of Innocence, How America Criminalizes Black Youth. We'll have more with Professor Henning after a quick break. You can join us at 410-662-8780. Our email is midday at wypr.org. You can tweet us at midday, WYPR, and follow me at Tom Hall, WYPR. Stay with us.
This is your public radio, 88.1 WYPR. And welcome back. It's Midday. I'm Tom Hall. If you've just joined us, my guest is Kristen Henning, a professor at Georgetown Law and the director of the Juvenile Justice Clinic and Initiative at Georgetown. She's written a book about racial disparities in the juvenile justice system. It's called The Rage of Innocence, How America Criminalizes Black Youth. You can join us at 410-662-8780, our email midday at wypr.org. You can tweet us at midday wypr. Professor Henning's going to talk about her book this afternoon or this evening at the University of Baltimore School of Law, and she will be with us until the top of the hour today. So, Professor, talk about um, this notion of adultification of black youth, teenagers. Uh, I've spoken about this on a number of occasions with other authors. There's another lawyer over at Penn named Dorothy Roberts who wrote about it uh, in relation to the child welfare system. Uh, April Ryan, uh, one of the few black uh, White House correspondents, has written about this. What what does it mean uh, and why is it a particular issue uh, vis-a-vis black youth as opposed to kids of other races? Absolutely. I am honored to be in company with April Ryan and Dorothy Roberts, some phenomenal, phenomenal uh, Black woman leaders. I think the best way to help us think about in a very concrete way, what do we mean by adultification, is to think about Tamir Rice. Folks will remember that Tamir Rice was a 12-year-old who um, was shot um, by the police in Cleveland. And he was shot within seconds of the police arriving arriving at a uh, public gazebo. And after the shooting, I often ask folks, do y'all remember what police officers said in explaining why they shot him? People usually say, oh, they received a 911 call that a black male with a gun was was at the park. Um, But what folks don't often remember is that those police officers also also kept saying that Tamir Rice looked older than he actually was. They focused on his, you know, size 36 pants and the, the fact that he was standing five feet, you know, X, you know, inches tall, um, that he was wearing an extra large jacket. And so therefore they could not see his 12 year old baby face that all of us can see in those, those pictures. And I think that's a real life example of the ways in which, um, black, uh, children, male and female, but especially males are perceived to be significantly older than they actually are. There is some very important empirical research by Dr. Philip Atibo Goff um, called The Essence of Innocence. And through that study, um, they found that both police officers and civilians um, uh, tended to perceive were more likely to perceive black males as significantly older than they actually were. And in fact, more than four and a half years older than they actually are. That has a profound impact upon the ways in which you interpret innocuous and ambiguous behaviors and facial expressions by Black youth. It um, has a significant impact on our tolerance for normal adolescent behavior. It has a significant impact upon whether or not um, police officers and other 
uh, adults feel that it's appropriate to lay hands on or use violence against black youth. And I should note that similar research has been done involving black girls, finding that adults tend to view black girls as older, as more knowledgeable about adult topics, as more mature, um, uh, less in need of protection than they actually are. So this is what we mean by adultification, both in a very real, concrete way, as well as um, through the science of, of, of it all. You talk in particular about the importance of schools and the school setting when it comes to that relationship between young black kids and uh, these so-called school resource officers or the police in general. Um, and you say that the, the implicit bias, which is something that, you know, we all talk about as a, as a general societal uh, issue, uh, is particularly acute in a school. If, if, a, if a, a cop in a school uh, arrests somebody or confronts somebody, um, that, that interaction is, is in many ways considerably more fraught than uh, that same interaction if it were to happen outside of the school, just on the street. Neither, in neither instance are they pleasant, but uh, the one in the school uh, is really difficult because there's that kid, you know, in full view of all the other kids uh, that he or she is hanging around with. Talk, talk about what the role of the schools needs to be. What, what sorts of things should we be doing in schools that we're not doing? Yeah, that's right, Tom. I mean, I think we discount um, the the psychological impact of policing in schools on young people. In our great desire to keep our kids safe and to keep our schools safe, we don't account for the cost associated with that trauma and that embarrassment, like my client, Eric, who was arrested in school in front of friends and family. And so what, you know, the, the question always becomes, like, so how do we keep our schools safe? And what do we need to be doing? I and mean, we need to be investing in alternatives to law enforcement in schools. Um, that means we need a continuum of mental health services available to young people um, in the school system. We need um, vocational opportunities to give young people um, a sense of pride, a sense of self, um, uh, you know, a sense of, of, of worth and welcome. Um, we need to create space for young people to have a voice. Um, uh, and, and when I say a voice, I mean also a voice in designing um, uh, what a safe school curriculum looks like. So we think about some of the mass school, school shootings. Think back um, to Parkland. Um, the young people who survived that talk very clearly. We want safe schools too, but we want safe schools that without police presence, right? We don't want a school climate in which we feel ostracized or criminalized. Um, and so we need, you know, we need to invest in smaller class sizes. There's actually research showing that even smaller class sizes reduces um, uh, uh, crime in schools. And so, um, you know, we over rely on policing as the answer to all social ills. And that includes in the school system. We've got to invest in, you know, teacher supports, one-on-one um, -on -one aids to children, um, uh, to teachers and to children. We need to support youth with disabilities. Um, youth and particularly youth of color with disabilities are by 
far the most likely to be arrested um, and, and penalized and criminalized in the school system. And then the final thing I'll say is that even in schools where there is a real record and a real evidence of violence, I mean, we need credible messengers and violence interrupters who understand the trauma that the young people have experienced and who can um, engage with those young people around solutions, um, mediation, restorative justice um, in the school system. In our last minute or two here, uh, one of the solutions that you recommend is for legislators to uh, have racial impact statements for the laws that they pass. Um, How would such a metric work? How would you determine uh, whether or not a particular piece of legislation would have a disproportionate effect on black youth? Oh, I so love that question. Um, You know, the idea is in very much um, we people, you know, often know that when it, whenever a new law is passed, we have a fiscal impact statement. The idea is how much will it cost to implement this law? Racial impact statements have been promoted as a way to get us to think ahead about what disproportionate impact um, will a particular law have on black and brown communities. The simple Simplest uh, example, I think actually I, I heard the tail end of your squeegee conversation, but the squeegee conversation is one, one of those. Like if you pass a law criminalizing, you know, squeegee uh, 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 use, then uh, what racial and class demographic is most likely to be impacted. Another example, when I think about adolescence and race and crime, I think about sagging pants. The cities that have... Um, uh, uh, laws that outlaw sagging pants. Who's being targeted, right? Who's being targeted for that for that uh, particular law? You can predict on the front end that African American youth are going to be disproportionately yeah. impacted by that. All right, and Professor, that's all the time we have. Kristen Henning, her book is called "The Rage of Innocence: How America Criminalizes Black Youth." Thank you so much for your, for your book and for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you. Professor Henning will be speaking about the book this evening at the University of Baltimore School of Law, the event sponsored by the Center for Criminal Justice Reform and the Sarah and Neil Meyerhoff Center for Families, Children, and the Courts. There's a book signing at 5.30, and Professor Henning's talk begins at 6 o'clock. That's it for us today. Coming up tomorrow, a special edition of Midday will bring you live coverage of the inauguration of Governor Wes Moore and Lieutenant Governor Aruna Miller. We'll have reports from the WYPR news team in Annapolis and in Baltimore and analysis and perspective with Dr. Terry Ann Scott of Common Power. So I hope you can join us tomorrow for the historic inauguration of Maryland's first African-American governor beginning at noon right here on 88.1 WYPR. Thanks for joining us today for Midday. I appreciate it. I'm Tom Hall. Have a great day. You're listening to Your Public Radio, 88.1 WYPR.